So, Father, we are but dust, and you know when new things come into our lives, things that are unexpected, that bring pain. It is so easy for us to just fall immediately into that emotion of fear, and you've given us that emotion. There's nothing wrong with that initial response, but it can become so easy to get trapped in that fear. And so this morning we gather together and we want to acknowledge that we are your child, your beloved one, and if you gave your son for us, is there no good thing that you will not withhold from us? And so we want to rest in that this morning. Thank you that we are sons and daughters and no longer slaves, no longer slaves of sin, no longer slaves of the enemy. Lord, we no longer have to be slaves of fear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, today's the big game, right? Everybody excited about that? Uh, I heard the thing about the Titans fans. Um, is that maybe that's the reason Adam is uh, is not here this morning? I'm not sure. Maybe he. I mean, if if you guys can welcome a Broncos fan, Titans fans are easy, right? That's that's like nothing to do. So, okay, we've been talking just last week and this week. I want to talking about the mission of God. God is a God that is on mission, and a mission to restore all things back to Himself. And the centerpiece of that mission is his desire to restore to himself all people. And um, that God is in relentless pursuit of this mission, that he doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. And as we read in 2 Samuel 14, 14, that God is continually devising ways to bring people who are estranged from him back to them himself. And that's why Jesus said in John 5 that God is at work continually up until this day and that Jesus was at work with him because we serve a God who is on a mission. Um, and because of his passion to bring, to restore all things and especially to restore people back to himself, we talked last week about that that requires that God frequently must do new things. Um, to reach an unreached nation, he has to do new things. To reach a new people group, he has to do new things. To reach into our own city to impact us, even into our own families, into our own lives, God has to do new things many times. And so, to be on mission with God means that there's going to be the occasional interruption and the disruption of new things. And if you remember last week, we talked about that to us, new things always look, they look different. And so we talked about the wineskins, that when God has new wine, that it does require new wineskin. And then I had said also that they look to us to be difficult. And we had talked about the different last week, and this week I want to hit the difficult. Um, before we do, we're going to try something I have never tried before. That's scary. Um, and if it doesn't work, we're going to go the old-fashioned way. Um, but we're going to... I had talked about at the end, because... If God's doing new things, that means change when He's doing a new thing. And so we had talked about this um, continuum that's used to indicate like where people are with change. And I asked you to think about it last week, even on your paper to circle it. In our small group, we talked about it and had a really great discussion of where all of us landed on this. And this week, the staff was like, you know, it'd be really interesting to see where are people in the church. 
And so um, here's the scale that if you're, if you're on the side of the one that you dread change, one thing's to say that is they are. If you're in that two range, you're not comfortable with change. It takes time to adapt. If you're in that middle, it's just you're neutral. You can change if you have to. If you're on that four number, you're okay with change, can adapt pretty easily. And then that number five is that you thrive on change, that you love it. Um, and it was interesting, in our small group, we had people kind of all over the board on that. And so we, I'm going to give something a shot that I've never done. We're going to try, um, I actually want to try a poll and see where we are as a congregation. So if you have a smartphone, I'd like you to get it out. And I would like you to, um, and we're going to see if this thing works the way it's supposed to. Um, we're going to. And my phone just froze, so that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> what in the world is that? Um, I can, that thing, okay, let's go back. So we're just, we're just going to try it, okay? Um, now I lost the thing. Are we back there? Okay. We're all over the place. Okay, I want you to, to take a minute, get on your phone, see if you can load that while I see if this will allow me to start it like it is supposed to. Okay, I just hit start, and so if somebody gets on successfully, um, is anybody on yet? Do you see, do you actually see it? Okay, what I want you to do is you pick one of those, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this up for just a minute, and I want to give you guys all a chance to, to get on that, and I want you to pick the one that best describes you. I'm going to leave this up for just another minute for those slow, my kids laugh at Pat and I, you know, how we type on, a, on our phones, how we do texting and that kind of thing. So for those of you of my generation and older who this is how we, we do things on phones. Um, just grab somebody younger, yeah. Skylar will gladly come and uh, we'll gladly come and do that for you. We'll go quicker probably. All right, I think, is that enough time? Are we ready to, Don, let's, huh? No, no, still some people. Oh, still, help. oh, we're helping, okay. Yeah, let's, let's make this a big shaming experience. If you're helping somebody, just point them out, make it really clear that, that they need the, the help. Okay. Let's take a look. Don, is that it? Are we ready? Put the address back up. I tell you what, let's just... Let's just go with the poll, with where we are. Go ahead and bring that back up. So, yeah, slide that over just a little, Don. So, where are we on... So, I, I assume... Oh, dread change. Okay, so it's one, two, three, four, five. So, the dread is 1.1. You know, wow, that's pretty awesome. 21.5. Look at this. Like... Okay, are you guys being honest? This doesn't fit the bell curve at all. This is, uh, you're just doing that for me. The truth, no, that's really interesting to see. That's kind of what we were wanting to look at was just to see where did we fall on that. Um, and that looks, Tyson, you're going to bell curve things. That looks, other than the one, that's pretty normal, other than the one. So, huh, interesting. So, can somebody take a picture of that for me? Here, I can do that. Or will I, will I make it crash if I do that? Here, hold on a second while I take a picture. I've seen some of you do this. Now I get to do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Thanks, 
thanks for going there. We, we just were like, it'd be really interesting to know where as a congregation we are with that. And that's, um, um, that's really interesting to see. So I want to talk for a minute. Oh, I, I don't want to go to those guys yet. Um, if you don't mind, I want to, um, to say something about the old because we talked about that. And when, if you were here last week, again, um, talking about that whole thing of the old and the new, that, again, that was not a shot across the bow. That was not uh, me telling you to brace yourself because this year we're upending everything and nothing's going to be the same or anything like that. That really wasn't the point. Um, I really was talking about that because to me that really is an important truth of the Bible, and I think if we're going to be on mission with God, that we just need to be ready, be looking for where He's at work, and to be ready to do to go the places and put on the wineskins that go with something if He's doing if He's doing a new wine. Um, so it's just that's that's really what it represents. I wanted to say a little bit more about old and new things. Um, I want to let you in on something that's actually a very important thing to me, and I want to visually talk about it. So when I, t you know, I can't be against old things because I'm old. I'm older than most of you here. Um, and I look like two old guys. So I've had a number of people tell me in, around town that they think to become a pastor at 12, you got to look like Al um, or something like that. And I've been, I've had students tell me I look like that other guy, Ramsey, Dave Ramsey. Um, when I'm talking about old and new things, I'm not talking about people at all, not, not at all, because again, I'm old, so um, personally, I find great value in old things, and I'm convinced that we need old things, um, and so this thing I'm going to show you, this diagram, is really important to me, and you know, if you're going to reach a culture, um, you need to do, this is a really big word, but you need to do what they call the missiological word. A mix, missiologist is a person, if you're going to reach a culture, you need to understand it. Um, you have to dig, dig into it to understand that culture. And so, th let me show you this diagram. Throughout all of human history, and still in most cultures around the world, even now, people have been deeply rooted and anchored in the past. Um, but in the West, modernism came in couple of centuries ago, and what modernism did is it brought a lot of things into Western culture that a lot of cultures still really don't experience, which is this strong emphasis on progress, and I'm all for progress, but it became about progress just for progress sake, that the old was, was not progress, um, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. snobbery. Everything in our culture now is about novelty, it's about what's new, it's about getting in on the fad. Um, the latest fashion, uh, like I showed you last week with the, uh, with the patches, I am, I, I've learned that if I just stay in the fashion I'm at, in 20 years it'll come back to where I'm at, so that's, uh, that's my philosophy. Mobility, how much people move around has made us a very rootless people. Our culture is very anti-authoritarian and anti-institutional, especially the younger you are, the more you get this message. Very extreme individualism is promoted, and what that all has led to is this sense, this move, or this thing in our culture that old is unimportant, the elimination of tradition, that anything traditional is the enemy. Um, but I want to tell you, and consumerism, I think, has really ramped this up. This just, you know, phones are obsolete. Once you get it, it's already obsolete. This, this push continually by marketing to get the new thing, get in the new fad, get in the new trend. So it's, it's amped that up. 
But what it's created is this, this dislike and this disdain for the old, is it has created um, some generations in our culture that are really very cut off from the past. It started with my generation, with um, the Busters or Gen X. The, the, what I'm talking about right now is, is a thing that's going on with my generation and the generations after, even more ramped up. Um, this sense of being cut off from the past, um, of feeling rootless, of not being any, anchored to anything large and meaningful from the past. Um, and in the process, we were cut off from any real story um, like Christianity, a larger narrative that tells us things that are bigger than just my life. And in the process of being cut off from the larger story, we've also been cut off from the future, no longer are tied to the future. And really all we hear, so there's a sense not of just rootless, rootlessness, but hopelessness. And really all we hear and believe is my own individual story. That's where really my generation and after has come to. Um, And again, this sense of rootlessness, of hopelessness, lots of fear and uncertainty about the future. That's why climate change is an example. If you hear the way it's talked about, especially around and to young people, it's created very high levels of fear and anxiety that our world won't be around much longer. And so there's this anxiety levels. The younger you go in a generation, the more they are through the roof right now. And so there is a sociologist who said that my generation and younger generations are a lot like the Titanic now, that we are a ship adrift, we are unanchored from any safe harbor, no anchor to what is behind, no anchor to, what, to a hopeful future, no ultimate destination, only destruction ahead, not a good ending to where we're going. And that's why a famous sociologist has said that the younger generations, that the way we live is we're even though we may not know it explicitly, that implicitly, we're just rearranging furniture in our minds on the Titanic, that we're on a ship going nowhere, and that all we really know and live into is the present. No deep ties to the past, no certain future, and so we just live for now and the experience of now. But I want you to know there is a deep human longing to be rooted to the past, to be anchored to the past, and there's a deep human longing to be anchored to the future, to a future that has hope. Um, and that's what I love about God's story is that God's story ties me to all of that. It ties me to the past. It roots me in the past, what God has done, a story that started long before me that continues now and that has, a, has an amazing ending. So as Jesus' follower, I am connected to a story that's much larger than me, that has a past, a present, and a future to a, a man who lived 2,000 years ago and he's had a movement, started a movement that has a lot to offer us. And through these last 2,000 years, there's been a lot of resources in the church um, that I think offers us good things. And so I have no interest in casting us off from things related to the past because I think especially younger generations more than ever, we need to be rooted to the past and rooted to, and anchored to the future. I really believe that. So that's my whole view of old and new and the future, I think it's all important, and I think there's a human longing for all of that. And again, that's why Jesus said that every teacher of the law has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as the what? The old, that you're anchored to the past, to the story of what's God doing. And that's why I love Winston Churchill. He said, if we open a quarrel between the past and the present, we shall find that we have lost the future. And I have no interest in 
opening a quarrel between the past and the present. Um, there is value in tradition, and there's value in staying rooted to the past, as long as it's not at the expense of the new thing God's doing, right? As long as it's not at the expense of the new thing's doing. And so, that's, um, that's why I stand with all that. And that, that whole thing I just did is really important to me, and the way I think about things and all of that. And I want to tell you, next week, um, God is already doing something new in our midst, and next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to really focus on a new thing that He's already been doing. Um, and I promise it's not going to up into your world. It's something um, very exciting. There's a new move that God is making in this community, and it's very much related to the green space that you've been hearing about. And next week, I want to tell you the story of the green space and let you know biblically why I think this new thing that God is doing is definitely of Him and why I think it's a very biblical thing. So you really don't want to miss next week. And the nice thing is there's no football game, right? No football game to miss out. So nothing else to do but to come here and do this. Um, We are going to actually have that space open next week. I'm just going to tell you ahead of time. From 11 a.m. after first service for a couple of hours, then we're going to have it open in the evening at 5 for people to come look at it, because we actually want you, after hearing about what God is doing with this, we want you to go take a look if you haven't seen it. So, okay. So, I want to jump in. So, God, when He is doing a new thing, to us, it always looks two things. It looks, the first one, D word is, it always looks different, because it's a new thing, and it also looks, it looks difficult, and so I want to hit that, the difficult thing. And I've mentioned I've been studying the book of Jonah, and I want to look briefly at a story this morning. In 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25, it says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. So Jeroboam is king in Samaria, the northern kingdom. And he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, who? Through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah is actually talked about in one other place in the Old Testament. Gath-Hefer, I bet you, Stroms, I knew you've been to Israel. Anybody's been to Israel, the UCs, I'm sure, um, the Lippert's. It is very close to Nazareth. In fact, the day we went to Nazareth to see Nazareth, we drove right by modern-day Gath Heifer, and they're like, this is where Jonah grew up, and it was just a few miles from Nazareth. And as you can see, it's just north of the capital of Samaria, which I've got the red dot on, which is where Jeroboam was reigning. This was during the first half of the 8th century B.C., the 700s B.C., Um, And Jonah was a prophet of good news to the kingdom of Israel because he told them their borders would be extended, and they were. Um, A guy from a really small town in Israel. So God, in His mission to reach all peoples and to reach all nations, was desiring to do something new in Jonah's day. And Jonah didn't know it at first. He wanted to reach out to the Assyrians and especially the capital of Nineveh. It was a new work he wanted to do. So we're told in Jonah chapter 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. 
But Jonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. As far as we know, Jonah is the only prophet in the Bible who specifically refused to do something that God told him to do and ran away from a thing that God told him to do. So why was he fleeing from this? Why was he going? If you look, he had to go to Joppa to get a boat. Why was he going in the exact opposite direction of if he had gone to Nineveh? Why was he doing that? Why did he get on a boat to go 2,000 miles away from the place that God had called him to? What was going on with that? I think it's because we follow a God who's on a mission and a God who will do new things, whatever's required to attain that mission. And to be on mission with God, it means an occasional interruption and disruption by the coming of those new things. And a new thing always means change, and change means a difficult. That's why I think we're going to dig into it, why I think he ran. Specifically, when I talk about difficult, three things. God's new things for us can be inconvenient, uncomfortable, and costly. If, you're, if you've got notes, there's a bu- bulletin thing. Last week had a lot of stuff. This one's got a lot of stuff too. So if you're interested on the sheet, the, this stuff is on the, the insert. So when God does a new thing, it frequently is inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, it's costly. It takes a sacrifice to do it. Like new wine in an old wineskin, God's new things always stretch us and they stress, stress us. That's just by nature of what they are. So God interrupts Jonah's life, disrupts his life by calling him to join him in a new thing that he's doing. What's interesting to me is Jonah is still proclaiming the word of, the God, word of God. God has not changed his mission as a prophet. He's still doing that job. Nothing's changed. God simply altered the people and the place to whom he was to proclaim. And what he did is he ran. I think he ran because it was going to be inconvenient, uncomfortable, and costly to him. Because don't we all prefer things really? Don't we prefer things to be convenient and comfortable and cost-free? Isn't that really our, just where we are? It's where I am. That's, that's really how I like things to be. So a different sermon. When I hit the book of Jonah in the near future, how near, I'm not sure yet, but I'm going to talk about his flight, but I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on that moment when God called him to go to Nineveh and what was going on in his head at that time. And I want to tell you, I think part of the reason he fled is because staying at home and being a prophet there was convenient, but going to Nineveh was inconvenient. Now, I need you guys' help this morning. How do you think it was convenient for him to stay in Samaria? I, I, need, I need some input. How would it have been convenient for him to stay home, to continue to be a prophet where he was? Why, why would it be more convenient to stay where he was? What's that? Yeah, it's familiar, right? He knows the place, knows the people, knows the roads. What, any other things? Yeah, everybody knew him. He was well known. Not only did he know the place, but he was known. Hey, can somebody take notes for me? I've got some stuff, but I've already gotten a a new thing out of this, so. Um, 
we're going to, in a minute, we're going to hit some more of these. It was inconvenient, I think, because for him to go to Samaria, the capital was only a 70-mile journey, two days by foot. To go to Nineveh was a 650-mile journey, 32 days by foot. Um, it would be like the difference between me walking to Garnett, Kansas, or me walking to Avon, Colorado. And as much as I love Avon, Colorado, and the mountains there, and the beauty, I, if you're going to ask me to take a walk, guess which way I'm walking? <laughs> I'm walking to Garnett, Kansas. I don't even know what's in Garnett, Kansas, but I'm sure it's a great little community, um, but that's where I'd go. So it was inconvenient for him to go there. How about the comfortable? This one, I think there's a lot of stuff. How was it more comfortable for him to stay in Samaria? I mean, we already hit some of them, but give me some more. Why is it more comfortable to stay there? Yeah, he's got a support system there. What? The food. We're going to come back to the food in a minute. We're going to make Brandy leave when I get to that point. But, but yes, because Brandy would be comfortable with food anywhere. That's a great gift. But the food, what else? Why else would it be comfortable to stay where he was but uncomfortable to go to Nineveh? Yeah, just the fact that it's changed, right? Just that alone. He knows the language, right? You go up to Nineveh, they speak a different language that he's going to have to learn, kind of a different dialect, I think, from my understanding of that time. Safe? Did I hear safe? Yeah. I mean, think about it. Uh, if you, to get, the roads back then were, especially the long distance roads were very unsafe for for him to travel in his country is safe, but to get on that road that goes up to Nineveh, there were a lot of bandits, so there was danger in all of that. Um, he was a country kid, right? Grew up in small town, Kansas. Um, I did, not quite that small, but I grew up in small town, and God was calling him to the big city. That's a big difference, right? Okay. And then how about to him probably staying home, not totally cost-free, but generally was cost-free, but for him to go to Nineveh would be costly, um, would, would be a sacrifice. Tell me why. Why is it less costly for him to stay home? Do what? Yeah, really doesn't have to go much of anywhere. Why is it costly for him to go to Nineveh? He has to what? Yeah, he has to leave his own comfort. Go into the unknown. What? Yeah. I mean, on a 32-day journey by foot, I mean, you're sleeping somewhere, right? Perhaps inns, the expense of food, the expense of travel, renting a camel at the local Hertz, whatever, whatever they did. I just don't know. Um, but it was inconvenient. It was uncomfortable, and for him to go there would be costly. I think it was also uncomfortable for him for another reason, that we know historically that there was a hatred, a great hatred of the Jewish people for the Ninevites. The Ninevites were known to be ruthless. They were militarily conquering a lot of area. There may have even been, they may have invaded northern Israel before that, and his home may have been affected, we don't know. But there was a great hatred for that people, and for him to get up and to go to a people that he hated to take the message of God that maybe they could be changed and their eternities at stake, that was too much for him. And so he had no interest in helping those people. Yeah, and probably, right, his own life. Right, you go there. I mean, you're listened to in Israel. You go there, and it's a different religion, a different message, and you're going to say what he says, which is basically in 40 days you guys are history. Like, do you, how, I mean, there was great danger in what he was doing. 
Um, I'm not going to talk about the experiencing God, but I do have a question. I'm wondering who or what is your Nineveh? What's your Nineveh or who is your Nineveh? What's the place that you could never go? The place maybe even now you feel like God is wanting you doing something, but you're struggling with the thing or there's a person or a group of people and you're wrestling with that. You're struggling with it because it's going to become inconvenient and uncomfortable and it's going to cost you something. Because I think we're all, we all wrestle with things. So I'm curious, what or who is your Nineveh? I think like Jonah, we don't mind following God as long as His path is parallel or it's in convergence with our chosen path. We'll gladly glow along with Him as long as it's convenient, comfortable, and cost-free, right? Truth be told, we don't like to be stretched or stressed. I know I don't. Um, we want convenience and comfort, and I think, again, consumerism, especially for younger generations, has ramped that up because all the message we get is it's about what you want, and it's all about convenience, comfort, and thing. well, not cost-free. I mean, uh, a lot of that stuff costs, but that's, that's the message that we're getting. So I think a lot of us would rather settle for the mediocre and the predictable rather than the new, if new means inconvenience, discomfort, and sacrifice. I don't know who wrote this, but the first time I heard it, it really nailed me in my heart. It's called $3 worth of gospel, please. I'd like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I'd like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. We follow a God who is on a mission, and He will do new things in order to attain that mission. And so to be on mission with God means that there's going to be the occasional interruption and disruption of new things. And when that happens, it will probably be inconvenient, uncomfortable, and it will cost us something because that's just the reality of the new things God does. And we just don't like to be uncomfortable. I do this, I've done this for years with international students. We love to sit in our zone of comfort, right? That's where we feel secure. What happens when you get out of your comfort zone? I mean, aren't those normal responses when God pushes me out of my area of comfort? But as I used to tell students all the time, I have to tell myself all the time, I rarely grow when I'm in my comfort zone. The only real-time growth takes place in my life is when I move outside of my comfort zone. I mean, I know this reality. I think we all know that. That's why Neil Donald said, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. Isn't that a great quote? Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. C.S. Lewis has some great quotes about this. What matters, what heaven desires and hell fears is precisely that further step out of our depth, out of our control. 
And I love this one. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity because God's on a mission. And sometimes that means doing a new thing, which means it's uncomfortable to me. And it requires sacrifice. It requires a cost. This Martin Trepto was a World War I veteran who fought in Europe. And after he had died, he, they found in his journal he had written this. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work. I will save. I will sacrifice. I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me. He was willing to do whatever it took for the sake of the mission. And it took sacrifice. And that's what um, it requires of us when God's doing that new thing. I think God rarely leads us into dangerous places. He's never led me into a dangerous place. I mean, I've been in Emporia, Kansas, all these years of ministry. But you know, a century ago, there were a lot of brave souls who were called one-way missionaries. They would purchase a single ticket on a boat to the place God had called them. Instead of a suitcase, they packed their earthly belongings in coffins because they knew they'd need one where they were going. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries, set sail for the New Hebrides, where every missionary before him had been killed. But he felt the call of God to go to that place and suffered a lot, but he lived 35 years and did ministry. And when he died... The people there loved him and buried him, and the epitaph they wrote was this. Isn't that amazing? When he came, there was no light, and when he left, there was no darkness. None of us will get called to make a sacrifice like that, right? I doubt it. Who knows? God may call somebody. But here's what I know, as you can tell, stories like this stir my heart deeply, and I think they do every heart, because we'll get to this next month, we're created with a deep need to believe, to long, to belong, but also to become. There is something in us that God put inside of us that we want to expend ourselves on something great. In the words of Teddy Roosevelt, to be in the arena, to have our face marred by dust and sweat, to strive valiantly to spend ourselves in a worthy cause, to dare greatly. There is something God has put in all of us that we want to live that kind of a life. But our consumer culture calls us to convenience and comfort and cost-free. Ernest Shackleton, I love this story, when he was going to go on an expedition to the Antarctic, put this in the newspaper. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. How many men do you think answered that ad in the paper? 5,000. 5,000. Because deep inside of us, we all long to live for a mission for a cause that's larger than ourselves. If you're a college student, I don't know if it's starting today, but upstairs, they're going to be doing the book, Don't Waste Your Life. And so if you're in here, and you're wanting to be challenged to live for something larger for yourself, this book is a great book. I've been through it with students. So they meet at 9.15 if you want to join that group. 
And I'm not saying everything new that God does means it's going to be a huge cost on all of that. But I just know that that's the reality when new things come. I know it from my own experience. When we worked with international students, um, it was inconvenient. Um, international time is so different than American time. And I used to be a slave to the clock. Now I'm not. And if you want to know why I'm not, it's because of their influence on me. It was a good thing, I think. But um, you can just plan on things being late. We had some internationals to our house for Christmas. And uh, everything was late. That's just the way it is. Um, there were last-minute requests for help, like the last minute, literally, to go to the airport, and you've already got plans. Um, they're constantly scheduling flights that get in late at night, and so you're getting home at midnight or 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Um, it, was, it was frequently inconvenient. It was uncomfortable sometimes. You know, there were the EGRs, those extra grace-required people who still needed the love of God. Um, dealing with Asian cultures who, harm, who value harmony over truth. And so they'll say, you'll say, hey, do you want to go to this event? And they'll say, uh, maybe. And it takes you 20 years to learn that maybe means no. You think maybe means maybe, but maybe means no. Um, this constantly cycling in and out of people when you're working with college students. When you're an introvert for me and 90 people show up on campus and for three or four days you're doing things with 90 people and you know none of them, that was out of my comfort zone. Uh, we said last night, we were talking, having 40, 45 people packed into our house when you're an introvert, introvert for a Super Bowl party can be kind of overwhelming. The food, talk about uncomfortable. I'm a very vanilla guy. Eating soup when, you, when it gets brought to you and it's got a fish head floating in it and your wife's pregnant and smells affect her a lot. It's things like uh, eating pig intestines or pig ear which has this weird crunch to it if you've never had pig ear. Or chicken feet, which has no meat. Why do you eat a chicken foot? I mean, I want the meat. Give me the breast, right? But then we found out for them our food's uncomfortable, like A&W root beer, which to them tastes like medicine. So it goes both ways, right? <laughs> and there was sacrifice involved in all of that. Um, for many years, great financial sacrifice, working full-time, more than full-time, having a part-time job. Holidays is when they're here with nothing to do. So you give up a lot of your holidays to be with, with them and to serve them. Family sacrifice. Family losing time with you. Um, again, the biggest sacrifice of all, I think, as I thought about it, was those 40 to 45 students in my home for a Super Bowl when it was so noisy and there was so much to do. I couldn't watch the game. Talk about sacrifice at a high level. But I want you to know there was great joy in all of that, and we were blessed, and I would never give it back because we saw God do so much, and He taught us so much through all of that. So that was, I, I remember that with great joy. So let me, two things I learned in those years, and we're going to wrap up. It's on your sheet, if you've got it, that I think help us with this. And it's number one, that when we have compassion for those who are lost and far from God and His loving benefits, when we're on mission with God, when we want to see lost people know Him, when we see people, when we look in their eye, we see a person on the road to an eternity. So when you have that compassion, it more than makes up for the inconvenience, the discomfort, and the cost. Um, I talk about Jonah. I'm going to skip through that if you don't mind, just for time's sake. But he presented the word to Nineveh. They turned from God, and, then, and his response was he became angry at God. 
And he was mad that God saved those people because he knew God was a God of compassion and a God of mercy. And that's what Jesus is like. In Matthew 9, 36, when he saw the crowds, he had, what did he have on them? He had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a sheep. So you will, you will feel that inconvenience, that discomfort, the cost, if you lose your heart for lost people. If you forget to look at their eternity, to have mercy, to see that this is a soul that's going somewhere. But to have that compassion makes all the difference because then those things, you don't feel them. And the other thing is, is when we experience the joy of being the touch of God's love in people's lives, when you see people, when you're, when you're impacting them and you're seeing people come to know Him, it makes more than makes up for the inconvenience and the discomfort and the cost. When you find joy in that. That's why in Hebrews 12 it says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set out before Him endured the inconvenient, the uncomfortable, and the costly. The really costly, right? His life. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and He could do that because of the joy set before Him. So compassion and joy, to me, are key. And if you lack that compassion for the lost, if you've lost that urgency, that desire to see people know Him, then new things look really inconvenient and uncomfortable and costly, and it's hard to get into them. So we just want to embody Jesus. All right, I want to wrap up with this. The God's on a mission, and that cost Him everything. And that's why it has to be more than us. It has to be more than us. And it has to be more than here. It has to be. So are we willing to, are we willing to enter into not just the different, but the difficult of being on mission with Him? Of being inconvenienced, uncomfortable, and having to make a sacrifice for the new thing God's wanting to do around us. I think that's what this body has demonstrated in the past. And that's my challenge is that we would continue to people be people who do that. So, I want to do something really uncomfortable. Can we do it? I want everybody to stand up. And you're going to have to leave your stuff. But we're, we're actually, I want us to step out. So, step out of your aisle if you can. I want us to circle up. And we need to, I think I was talking to somebody, we need to have an end. So, I want one end to be that side of the building. So, I want some people over there. So, you know, go, some go to the back, some to the front. I want us to circle up. And we'll take it as far as it needs to go. So you guys over here, you guys kind of watch because we may have to bring it back a row or two. But we'll see. I have no idea how many we're going to fit in. And I'm going to come in in the middle. But I want us to all get around and circle up. Yeah, are we going to have to weave? We may have to weave our circle. Or, or we'll make it work. Just find a place. There's some space back over there. Let's see if we can kind of make a big circle. Can I hold your hand? I want to, once you get there, find a place to squeeze in. If you're new to 12, we don't do this every week, trust me. Uh, we may never do this again. I don't know. But I want you to hold hands. Okay, so a little bit of doubled up in the back. That's pretty cool. Okay, now I know what to do first service, so... Larry, you, you get jump in there. 
Yeah, grab some hands around you. Um, so, we gather weekly as a community, as a family, to worship Him and to be formed by Him to become like Jesus, right? That's why we do gather together. And we need each other. We need support. We need help. We need the prayer. We need the gifts that everybody here has to offer. You may not feel like it, but we really need it, the, everybody here playing a part in what we do. We need everybody. And we, we hold hands together this morning. Yeah, the intro, some of the introverts are not doing it because they're uncomfortable. I totally understand. <laughs> but we hold hands as a, as a symbol of saying we know that we need to be unified. Is that not right? We need to be unified as a community. Al talked about that all the time, the need for unity. Because the truth is, if Satan is going to keep us from doing the things that he wants us to do, the greatest way to do it is to create disunity in this place, right? That's the main way that he attacks a body. But I want to tell you, our focus can't only remain here. It just can't be on us. It just can't be on this place. Do you know when complaints and whining and all that stuff about church happens? It's when all we're focusing on is us and here. That's when it's easy to get whiny and complain because things aren't comfortable or convenient anymore. So we've got, it's got to be more than us and more than here. And I want to tell you, many churches, this is their only posture, week in and week out, it's this posture. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn around and face the wall. I know that's really uncomfortable, especially if you're up against it, but I want you to turn around and face the wall and hold hands again, Okay. And just listen as you stare at the wall. <laughs> Sorry for those of you at the wall. We gather weekly as a community, as a family, to worship God, to be formed by Him, but also to be sent by Him, to be sent by Him. I love what National Community Church says. It says, we are spiritual contributors, not spiritual consumers. The church does not exist for us. We are the church, and we exist for the world. And the reason I'm having us turn outward this morning is because it has to be more than us and it has to be more than here. We have to be on mission with God. So can I pray for us? So Father, as we stand here as a community, hands held together, having faced inward because we are part of this family, but now facing outward, help us to be a people who gather, that when we gather, we are here to worship you. We're here to be formed by you. We're here to love and serve each other. But we're also here because we know that you want us to be sent out into a lost world on mission with you. So please form us more and more into that kind of people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for doing that with me, especially for those of you whose face was the wall. You, uh, you are sent.